0: Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. And we are so amazed at your creation and your design and and how you've uh, constructed things to run. And we pray that you will uh, enlighten our minds today, draw us together in unity and love, and and we uh, understand you more fully. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And uh, before we get into the lesson, I had this email that came in this week, short one. It says, I recently ordered three of the remedy for my family. I had been using it on- online since AACC, American Association of Christian Counselors, in Nashville last year. I tell people that I finally have a New Testament in my own language. For example, the frequent use of the word selfishness instead of sin really gets my attention. Uh, really gets my attention. As a Mennonite Christian, I also agree that uh, various things went wrong uh, in the connection with Constantine. I will give and use the 24 copies at church for the men's Bible study, my Sunday school class, and church leaders. I will also send a donation to help with the free things that you do. Thank you so much. A writer from Iowa. Yep. Alrighty. And then, how many were here last week and we talked about quantum mechanics and, uh, and so forth and, and uh, our, how, how our intentions and our thoughts actually can have impact on other people at distance with uh, in, uh, time and space? Well, um, we talked about quantum mechanics, which are how things are connected and define Newtonian physics, Newtonian physics or, or friction motion and things like that. But beyond quantum is something called string theory. And string theory postulates that everything in the universe is made up of these tiny vibrating strings. And these strings are identical, but if they're identical, then why would one present an, as a heavy, heavy object like a proton, and another an object without mass like a photon, a particle of light? And it has to do with the frequency or the vibration, in other words, the amount of energy in the string. Remember Einstein's equation E equals mc squared, E is energy, equals the mass times the speed of light squared. So the more energy you have, the more mass you have, okay? And so this is the idea that all these little tiny strings... Now, if you want to know how tiny they are, according to the, the theorist, if we had a silver dollar and we blew the silver... Take the size of the silver dollar and we blow that up, magnify it to so it's the size of our solar system. You can get your mind around that. <laughs> it's mag- just huge. Then a string would be the size of a tree, Okay? So a string is the size of it. its Really, 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 really tiny. Okay? And so all these things are supposedly connected in the entire universe with these infinitesimally small strings. Now, with all that in mind, I got an email this week from um, Mark Cox, who's one of our online listeners used to come, and he's a pastor at one of the churches here in the uh, region. And he, he reminded me of this quotation from Ellen White found in Evangelism, page 93. By the way, do you find the string theory too bizarre to to believe in? It's like, that's too bizarre. Listen to this quote. The striking feature of divine operations is the accomplishment of the greatest work that can be done in our world by very simple means. It is God's plan that every part of his government shall depend on every other part, the whole as a wheel within a wheel, working with the entire harmony. He moves upon human forces, causing his spirit to touch invisible cords, and the vibration rings to the extremity of the universe. (laughs) Didn't that just give you chills? Blow your mind? Okay, well, so what do you think about this idea now? That healing prayer could mobilize these cords, causing these vibrations over space and time, that if you have healing prayer with the intention of of love and, and regard, that you can actually alter another person's DNA and they can experience healing. What do you think about that? Too bizarre? Well, an interesting study was done <laughs> by Dr. McCrady and colleagues, and they had individuals trained to focus their intention with love and goodwill, their intention with a, with a regard of love and goodwill. Then they took human DNA from placentas, and they put them in uh, test tubes, and they had them focus with love and goodwill, their intention to have the DNA either become more tightly wound together, or unwind and loosen up. And they could measure that with ultraviolet light because the more tightly wound the uh, DNA in the vial, it would absorb more light. And so it was very measurable to do that. Okay? As they focused their intention with love and goodwill... Then in the intent, they, had, they, they generated the emotions of love and goodwill and they focused their intention on the DNA to wind or unwind, they could actually measure 25% change in the DNA conformation. Conform, in other words, the structure of the DNA changed by 25% based simply on their intent and goodwill. Now what gets interesting is when the individuals would just generate the feelings of love and goodwill but had no mental intention to change the DNA conformation, there was no change in DNA conformation. Further, when they had the intention to change the DNA, but their emotions were not set on love and goodwill. Their emotions were set on frustration, irritation, anger. No DNA confirmation. Now, how could they tell whether their emotions were were this love and goodwill or whether their emotions were negative? By, By something called heart rate variability you can actually measure a person's heart rate variability. When you have an emotion of love and goodwill, the heart becomes very rhythmic, and, 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 uh, and the variability between heart rate actually decreases. And becomes very. But when you're irritated, when you're angry, you get a lot of variability in your heart rate, and it's measurable. And so when they focus their intention with love and goodwill, the DNA confirmation changed. But when they focused their intention with negative emotions, they couldn't get the DNA confirmation change. Isn't this interesting? Well, you may think, okay, maybe that's just a general electromagnetic field effect. They're they're making that effect. So they said, let's do this study. Let's take three vials with the same concentration of human DNA in it. And let's have these individuals focus with love and goodwill on changing the DNA conformation more tightly wound in two of the vials, all set next to each other, but not the third vial. Guess what? Light absorption changed in the two they focused on, but it didn't change in the third one. Then they did five experiments where in five different experiments they took the vials with the uh, DNA and had them taken a half a mile away. And they had the individuals focus on changing the DNA con- con- conformation with love and goodwill in their heart. And guess what? 25% change in DNA conformation was measured a half a mile away. This is quantum mechanics. This is string theory. This is entanglement stuff. It's really cool. Is it cool? Okay. Next study done by Dr. Targ and their group, and I've got the references in the notes. If you want to go look up the original sources, you can do this. Conducted a study that measured the impact of long-distance remote prayer on individuals who were never met by the ones doing the prayer. These, these faith healers were brought in and asked to pray for the health and recovery of terminally ill AIDS patients. And the, the faith healers were presented with a photo, and name, and the T helper cell count, of the person they were to pray for. The individuals in the study were randomized to either have one of these people, these faith healers, pray for them or not, but it was very rigorously guarded so no one knew wh- which group they were assigned to. Six months later, those who received the remote healing prayers showed improved not only improved mood, but significantly less doctor visits, less hospitalizations, less days in the hospital, higher T helper cell counts, fewer AIDS-defining illnesses, and significantly lower viral loads than those who are not being prayed for. Why? Putting the studies together, the theory is, in fact, that their prayers, through these quantum entanglements, these string theories, with intention and goodwill, were causing DNA confirmation changes on a host of genes that resulted in a myriad of various proteins that were health-promoting and viral fighting to result. In another study... Researchers placed cancer patients in a Faraday cage. A Faraday cage is a cage in which it's like copper wire mesh, which blocks all electromagnetic um, signals from entering the cage. And they even used fiber optics to to run in to measure the um, what they were going to measure. They were using fiber optic cables, so there was no le- uh, wires running into the cable that EM could potentially go through. Then they had either a spouse or close friend focus with healing intention and love on the cancer patient, now this is where it gets bizarre, on 10 second intervals, randomly chosen by a computer. So a computer would say, okay, go, and for those 10 seconds you would focus a healing intention on that person inside a Faraday cage. And they were measuring the, um, the um, electric conductivity of their skin, and randomly, every time those 10 seconds were going on, the electrical conductivity of their skin changed. Indicating it was activating their autonomic nervous system. The point is we're all connected. And we are free will beings. And the quantum mechanics explain that our intentions, our free will choices, actually impact the world around us. It's quite profound. Our thoughts, our beliefs, our heartfelt intentions cause these things. Now what do you think with all this about the Ellen White quote I read earlier? About the invisible... Strings, vibrating. Isn't it profound? What about James? The prayer of a righteous man. Avail his Now what makes a man righteous? It means that they have a right heart attitude. They're right in love with God. You see, righteous is not doing right rituals and having a selfish heart. Righteous is having a heart of love. And the prayer of a righteous man, a heart of love, and that's what the study shows. Only when your heart has love and good intent do you actually have these positive impacts on people. So it
1: really had nothing to do with their religion.
0: In this particular case, it didn't, because many religions are are not very helpful. It had to do with the the, God is love, okay? And we see it most profoundly in Christ. Further, what do you think about now when you think about circumcision of the heart by the Spirit? Cutting away these strings, (laughs) these belief and emotional attachments to destructive things and establishing your heart's connections with godly things, things of love and altruism. Okay, isn't it profound? Yeah.
1: So how do you um, work with people then who prayed intentionally for somebody to be healed or proved, and they died?
0: How do you work with people along those lines? These didn't necessarily prevent death. It, it may, may have changed the outcome. But remember, even Jesus, when he healed people, He healed the woman with the issue of blood. He even raised Lazarus from the dead, but all of them still ended up dying. Didn't they? All the lepers, all the blind people, they all ended up dying. Why? Because we're still in a world in which we are slowly decaying. So we're seeing the effects, but we have to remember, we're still in a world that isn't working as God designed it to work. Okay. Not only that, our individual prayers don't override the free will intention of the person being prayed for. And, and and I didn't go into all the studies, but I can tell you, your own beliefs about what's happening to you uh-huh. are more powerful than the beliefs of another person's intentions for you.
1: Mm-hmm. So it almost sounds like if a person is to say dying of cancer, and they want people to pray for them. Mm-hmm. And they believe in healing themselves; that it would be, they'll be healed if enough prayers are said. It almost sounds like if enough prayers are said. Re-
0: within within limits, within limits, because what's happening is, if you look at the microbiology, other than God working to perform a miracle and provide new, let's say, genetic information that's not in the body itself. For instance, let's say somebody with uh, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, there's a, there's a missing gene, a broken gene. The genetic information to produce a certain protein is not in that person's body. All the prayer in the world, unless God himself, the creator, steps in and provides that genetic information, won't result. The, the studies that I'm telling you about, what's happening is your prayers are actually resulting in quantum connections which are causing in that person's body the activation of certain genes that they possess to produce proteins that are healing for them. But if you don't possess those genes, then the prayer isn't going to have the outcome. Or if you continue to live outside the laws of health. Or if you continue to live outside the laws of health. It doesn't violate your free will choice. Remember, these are free will choices. But it also, if you really start thinking about all this, it goes back to the the purpose of prayer. And you look in, the, in Daniel chapter, I think it's 10, where he begins to pray uh, for the king of... um Persia to let the people go, and the and the angel comes, and he's fighting against the prince of Persia. Gabriel's fighting against the prince of Persia. What's all going on here? This is going on in the king of Persia's mind, and there's influences happening based on prayer.
1: This is in harmony with the design law.
0: It's all, exactly.
1: designed all this to work this way, and it's not to be confused with we talk God into doing something we want Him to do. Right. That's exactly. what some prayer chains worry me about that. Yep. We're trying to convince God to do the right thing. That's not the same thing. Exactly. exactly.
0: <clears throat> it could devolve into paganism.
1: More prayers, more appeasements uh, for More perfect prayers, more
0: appeasement. Or into self. We have power. We have the power. We can get together and we can hold hands and we can do this in and ourselves. Now, there are certain things we can do. We can do surgery. We can do massage, we can do lots of things that do have healing benefit, but they're all working inside the mechanisms of how God has constructed things. So even positive influence, we can have love and concern. Maybe you've seen that, that you've expressed love to somebody who was very troubled and you saw the healing impact of, of them being accepted and loved, okay? And that can happen even if a person doesn't believe in God. Why? Because it's inside God's design. It's how he has designed things to do. But it's much more effective when we connect with the source. Much more effective, yes.
1: When we take it to where Brian and Russell were speaking about, we then put ourselves over God.
0: Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. Alrighty, so let's move on to the lesson. I just thought I had to follow up from last week. It was so fascinating. Have I blown your mind this morning? Okay, so justice and mercy in the Old Testament. Lesson number three in the quarterly. The role of the church in the community. Now when you hear the title, justice and mercy in the Old Testament, what pops into your mind? Jesus Christ. Justice and mercy in the Old Testament. The
1: scales.
0: (laughs) The scales, okay. The scales pop into the mind. Let me ask you this question. Is there a difference, and, and, and do pause before you answer. Is there a difference between justice and mercy? And, and this is kind of something for you all to process. Do you see it? Is there a difference? Be, and if there's a difference, what's the difference? How are they different? Well, you know the question I frequently ask, what law lens are you looking through? If you, if you, if you look through the human law construct, that laws are imposed, requiring enforcement, then what's justice in that law lens? Retribution punishment the infliction of the just the appropriate meted out judicially determined punishment inflicted upon the lawbreaker that's what the justice is in that system what's mercy in that system
1: we'll give you a pass
0: yes and i actually one of the dictionary definitions of mercy under it is here's you can look at the dictionary the discretionary power of a judge to pardon someone or to mitigate punishment especially to send someone to prison rather than invoke the death penalty yeah, you know, this idea that well, justice requires we punish. Mercy is the mitigation, or not, or or, or uh, setting aside the punishment. That's what mercy is in the human law construct. Level four. This is level four and below thinking.
1: You could say that they're the same thing because the merciful approach is to justify that person, to put them right, to move them into correct position, healing. That is the merciful thing to do. It's not punishment.
0: It's bringing. The- but this level four thinking. Let's just this unpack it so you won't be caught up here because this is where most people that you will talk to will immediately think justice is, is the just amount of punishment. God is the judge. He's always perfect. He can assess all the variables and he can come up with the right. And, and some people will teach that in the thousand years you get to sit on a committee and you get to review the records and you get to be weigh in and make a vote on how long a particular person suffers before they're killed. Some people teach that, you know. and And, and it'll be just because we'll have all the perfect records of everybody there. So we'll know all the details. And then justice is in the infliction of that. But mercy. What's mercy? Bringing it into an end? Not punishing him for all eternity? This is what some might say? Hmm. Or. In this particular case, for most Christians, mercy is God. God was required by law and justice. He had to inflict the penalty. But he loved us too much, so he sent his son, and he punished his son instead and, and, and invented the wrath and the just punishment on his son. And then, if you accept that payment, God won't have to punish you, and thus he is both merciful and just. This is penal substitution theory. But God is the creator. He's the builder of space, time, matter, energy, life. His laws are the protocol upon which reality is constructed to operate. Thus, deviations from his law result in what? What do deviations result in? Death. It's, it's a terminal condition to deviate. So in, with that mindset, with level 6-7 mindset, then what does justice look like? Justice, the right thing, doing what's right, is the sustaining of God's laws the protocols upon which all reality exists, not changing one jot or tittle of the law because to do so, this universe that we know collapses. It doesn't exist if he changes it. This is how it's built. It's how it's constructed. So justice is continuing his law, which includes the law of love and liberty, not violating those, and granting people real freedom to make their own choice. That's justice. But then, if the just course is for the deviant to live under God's design law, then what happens to them? To reap what they've sown, what, what do they reap? They reap death. Have I lost everybody in here today? <laughs> okay, because <laughs> usually like you guys rule. Okay, so where does the mercy come in then? Where's the mercy? Mercy is God, through Christ, providing free remedy which will heal and restore all those who will freely choose to partake it and participate. That's the mercy. The condition is terminal, but God, through Christ, mercifully offers a remedy to heal all that we freely participate
1: in. And also mercy to allow us a a span of time to think about it rather than the natural consequences would have come a lot sooner if if he hadn't intervened.
0: And so, with this in mind, justice doing the right thing and mercy doing the merciful thing, are they really different? Or, in reality, are they always expressions of love? Always. So, let me give you an example. If you had a child dying of liver failure from years of alcohol abuse and they're dying, and if you've ever seen someone die of liver failure, it's one of the worst ways to die. It is a horrible situation as they die of liver failure because the liver produces all the proteins for blood clotting and albumin, and you swell up and you turn yellow and you bleed into various places. It's a very horrible, miserable way to die. If you had a child dying of liver failure from alcohol abuse, yet you, had the, you actually had the ability to provide a remedy that would not only save their life, but restore them to perfect health, including victory over alcoholism. If you had that remedy, would you offer it to them? And if you offered them that remedy, would that be right? Would it be just of you to do that? Would it also be merciful? Standard design law, justice and mercy are synonyms. But wait, what if your child, even though you've provided this remedy that would cure them completely, refuses it, won't take it? What then? What then is the just or right action for you to take?
1: Because so it's the child, you would do it anyway. Uh,
0: the child, adult child. Because remember, they've they've had years of alcohol use and liver failure, okay? As an adult child. What then is the right action to take if they refuse it? Do you then, well, if you refuse this, you're a disobedient child. I'm going to have to punish you. for your. I'm going to beat you. I'm going to torture you. I will have to now execute you. Is that what you would do?
1: No. You, You let them die as mercifully as possible.
0: Ah, so would justice require one to harmonize their actions with the law of liberty? Leaving the individual free. You
1: could still be angry. Angry because there's nothing more you can do. Not angry at the person, but at the situation.
0: And if you did allow them to die while you possessed the cure, but they refusing the cure, of course, would allowing them to die also be a merciful thing? Yes. Or would it be more merciful to artificially keep them alive in a state of pain and suffering? Which is the merciful thing. Is it the right thing to let them go and have their free choice? Is it also the merciful thing? Do you see, when you understand look at 6 and 7, justice and mercy are always harmonizing because they're always expressions of love. It's the right thing, it's the merciful thing. With this uh, idea in mind, I want to read with you now, and we're going to break this down like we've done other quotes before a quotation out of Great Controversy. And I want you to think, I'm sure most of you have read this before, and I want you to think when you read it before, if, maybe some of the thoughts that came to mind because I'll read a sentence or two we'll pause and examine it but here we go it's found in page 541 God has given to men a declaration of his character and of his method of dealing with sin pause right there his method of dealing with sin and she's going to quote a bible text next there's a bible text very next thing coming to to expound upon that method here's what she says The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. This is his method for dealing with sin. What do you hear? What method did you just hear described?
1: Love and mercy.
0: Love and mercy. That's the method. But what does it mean he will not clear the guilty? What law lens are you looking for? Looking through. See, if you look through design that we just talked about, it's like saying, by no means will we, the person who's dying in their continual abuse of alcohol and liver failure and so forth, we, we don't say, well, that's okay. We'll let you live eternally in misery and suffering. We won't do that. Keep going. All the wicked he will destroy. The transgressors shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. Two Psalms were quoted there. Now listen to this next part. The power and authority of the divine government will be employed to put down rebellion. Yet all the manifestations of retributive justice will be perfectly consistent with the character of God as a merciful, long-suffering, and benevolent being. Oh, these are strong words. I, I mean, I've, I've heard this quoted: uh, retribution. There it is. Retributive. Retribute. God will take retribution. He will just use His power to make them pay, to make them pay for what they've done. I'm pausing in the middle of the quote as you, because I want you to think as you read these things. Stop and think about what you're reading. What does it mean? First off, can you reason this out without even getting the rest of the quote? Because it says the power and the authority of the divine government will be employed to put down rebellion. What do you understand the power of God's government to be?
1: Love. love.
0: Ah, the power of truth and love. This is the, and if you remember, if you have that, your computer going, remember Ellen White's other quotes where he says, compelling power is found only under Satan's government. God never uses coercive power. His methods are truth, love, and freedom are the only methods to be employed. You put that together with this, then what power? Powers of truth, love, and freedom. Is that what you initially heard when you hear retributive justice? Or wait, something else comes in. See, our minds are so infected with a, with a premise of how the world works, we project it in. Let's keep reading, though. Because what does it actually look like? She, and she also said in the in the quote, as merciful, consistent with his character, as merciful, long-suffering, and benevolent. So somehow it's got to be consistent. We'll see what happens here. Very next sentence after that. God does not force the will or judgment of any. He takes no pleasure in a slavish obedience. He desires that the creatures of his hand shall love him because he is worthy of their love. Can you, can you, if this is true, can God then be the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and punishment? Can he be? He can't be. So this idea, however you understand retributive, it can't be the human idea of retributive. It can't be. Because the moment you... Well, let me just ask you. Can you get loyalty, devotion, admiration, and love and trust by threatening to kill people who don't? Yeah. I will kill you if you don't love and trust me. I will. I really will. And I have the power. And you know they have the power. And you know you can't escape. They will find you anywhere. You, you, you can't get what God wants. And that's why the statement, he doesn't force the will or judgment of any. He takes no pleasure in slave obedience. He wants us to love him because he is worthy of our love. Next sentence. He would have them obey him because, here's the reason we should obey, they have an intelligent appreciation of his wisdom, justice, and benevolence. Do we have an intelligent appreciation? Intelligent. We have to understand his ways. This is level seven thinking, not level four. Level seven. How how his, his design actually works in reality. Why pain and suffering comes when you deviate from the law of love. Not fear of punishment. It's Satan's view that God must punish sin. Because if he can get you to believe that God is a source of inflicted punishment, it undermines your ability to love and trust him. All who have been continue on all who have a just conception of these qualities will love him because they are drawn toward him in admiration of his attributes the principles of kindness mercy and love taught and exemplified in our savior are a transcript of the will and character of God how do, how do, how do those what you see in Jesus comport with retributive justice do you see Jesus using power to punish people but this is a, a transcript of, of the character of God Christ declared that he taught nothing except that which he had received from his Father. The principles of the divine government are in perfect harmony with the Savior's precept. Now, the principles of divine government are in perfect harmony with the Savior's precept. I'm about to tell you what it is. Love your enemies. Okay, so God's government perfectly harmonizes with Jesus' statement, love your enemies. Yet, somehow, there's retributive justice here. What? What, what is that? How's that working? How's that love for my enemies? We keep going. God executes justice upon the wicked for the good of the universe and even for the good of those upon whom his judgments are visited. Now, how do you understand that? What is justice? He executes justice. Kind of laid some groundwork. We talked about your child with a liver failure. Kind of laid some groundwork for that. How do you understand God executing justice?
1: Letting go, do Letting go. Let
0: Remember, it's always doing what's right. So if you ever get confused with that word, just come back. Justice is doing what's right. Okay, what's the right thing? What's the right action for God to take? What is right? Under what universe? Under the universe of love and the universe of design law?
1: Just because someone decides that they don't want God doesn't mean they can't be wooed. <laughs> I mean, I think the additional merciful thing, that, the just thing that God does, is continue to try to get through, even though you are... Until when? Well, until you. There's no more receptors left in there.
0: Okay. And when that happens, what is the just thing then? Does God, as you know him, revealed in Jesus, want to cause more pain? Does God want to be the cause of more suffering, the more, more distress? Or does he want to heal all who let him? And stop the torment of those who won't. Does he want to bring their pain and suffering to an end?
1: Yes.
0: Yeah, just as you would with a child who was in suffering and misery and were beyond your ability to save and heal, you would not want to torment them, keep them alive in a tormented state for all eternity. Thus God's justice is like the parent who allows the child in liver failure to go if they refuse healing. So notice what's described next. Here's the next sentence. He would make them happy if he could do so in accordance with the laws of his government and the justice of his character. What's his intention? He would make them what? A parent was going to make, I'll make you, I'll heal you if I can do it in harmony with the laws of health. If I can do it in harmony with how life is constructed to work. If I can do it with your free will participation. He surrounds them with the tokens of his love. He grants them a knowledge of his laws and and follows them with the offers of his mercy. But they despise his love, make void his law, and reject his mercy. Question, how do people make void God's law? They make it void. What's make it void mean? Of no effect, right? How would people make God's law void or of no effect?
1: Persisting in evil conduct or...
0: Okay, so 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 one way is to actually live out of harmony with the law as if it doesn't exist. So you choose to conduct yourself out of harmony. So the, the power of the healing power of the law has no power on you because you're violating it. So one way is to choose to live out of harmony. What's another way? Replace it with a false law. Bingo. Replace it with a false law. And think about what Christ talked about with the Pharisees in his day how many times he confronted them because they were lawkeepers. we have a law you're breaking the law you're breaking all this law on Sabbath over and over again these are the people who wouldn't go into Pilate's judgment hall why wouldn't they go into Pilate's judgment hall on Good Friday why wouldn't they go in because they didn't want to break their law and not be able to take Passover so they're, they're, they're fastidious they search the word they search the word looking for every detail to, to find eternal life they want to keep the law But they've got a completely corroded and corrupt concept of what the law is. They think it's legal. They think it's imposed. They think it's something you punish when you break. We must stone this woman. She broke the law. She's an adulterer. We must punish for the lawbreaker. And therefore, God says at the end of time, they will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed miracles in your name. We kept the law in your name. Yet ye hands, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. One way to make void the law is to accept a completely corrupted human law construct and, and, and think that it's all this behavior. And I can't tell you how many patients come see me burdened from all denominational backgrounds because they have this this idea that, that they're under condemnation and punishment. Keep on, keep on going. While, while constantly receiving his gifts, they dishonor the giver. They hate God because they know that he abhors their sins. The Lord bears long with their perversity, but the decisive hour will come at last when their destiny is to be decided. Question. Who decides their destiny? They do. Do you understand that you are really flying in the face of what nominal Christianity teaches? Even, even your, your denominational church Many people in leadership in your denominational church teach that what decides it is judgment. There's a judgment day you'll have to stand before God and He decides your destiny. That's what many teach. You guys realize you're really flying in the face of tradition here? Good for you. Good for you. Because what decides the destiny is not a judiciary finding in a heavenly courtroom. What decides your destiny is whether you choose to open the heart to God for healing and transformation or whether you choose to close your heart to God. That's what decides it. That's deterministic. Keep going. Will he then, their destiny is to be decided. Will he then chain these rebels to his side? Will he force them to do his will? These are rhetorical questions, meaning the answer is implied, no, he won't do this. He will not chain them to his side. He will not force them to do his will. Those who have chosen Satan as their leader and have been controlled by his power are not prepared to enter the presence of God. Why are they not prepared? What prevents them from being prepared? What would it mean to be prepared? Well, if they've accepted Jesus, if they've accepted Satan, and they follow him, it means they didn't accept the legal payment of Jesus' blood on their account in heaven, so they don't have any legal right to be there. Is that, is that the problem? Is that the answer? Notice what's said next, why, why they are not prepared. Pride, deception, licentiousness, cruelty have become fixed in their characters. How did it become fixed? Who fixed it in their characters?
1: They did.
0: Yes. If God judges their characters fixed... In rebellion against him, does his judgment make their characters fixed in rebellion against them? Or is his judgment merely the accurate diagnosis of what is? See, that's what judgment is. It's the accurate diagnosis. That's level six and seven thinking. Level four thinking, though, judgment is the determination. When you go before the judge, you presented the evidence and then he makes a ruling. That's level four and below thinking. That's not the judgment of God. The judgment of God is the, let him who is righteous be righteous still. Let him who is wicked be wicked still. Or in Hosea, Ephraim is tied to his idols. Let him go. There's a judgment. There's a condition of Ephraim's heart. He's completely hardened on his idols. That's his condition. Keep going. Can they enter heaven to dwell forever with those whom they despise and hated on earth? Truth will never be agreeable to a liar. Meekness will not satisfy its self-esteem and pride. Purity is not acceptable to the corrupt. Disinterested love does not appear attractive to, self, to the selfish. What source of enjoyment could have an offer to those who are wholly absorbed in earthly and selfish interests? Could those who have lived their lives spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high and holy state of perfection that ever exists there, every soul filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy, enrapturing music and melodious strains rising in, in honor to God and the Lamb, and ceaseless streams of light flowing upon the redeemed from the face of him who sits on the throne? Could those whose hearts are filled with hatred of God, of truth and holiness, mingle with the heavenly throng and join their songs of praise Could they endure the glory of God and the Lamb? No, no. Why not? Because God uses divine power to prevent them, to torture them, to inflict pain upon them. Why couldn't they endure it? Keep going. Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven. That they, But they have never trained the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven. And now it is too late. A life of rebellion against God has unfitted them. For heaven. Why are they unfit? What makes them unfit? Remember the strings we talked about. Remember the heart, the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Remember the attitudes of the mind. Remember the motivations. Now listen to this next sentence. It's going to blow, blow your mind. Its purity, holiness, and peace would be torture to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. This is huge. What do they experience as torture? Purity, holiness, and peace. Get your mind around that. Purity, holiness, and peace. Is this God using his power to cause them pain, to inflict suffering? Is this something coming out from God other than goodness, mercy, and truth, and love? No. It is their condition which experiences goodness as pain, Purity is torment, holiness is suffering. That's what they experience. The torture happens because of unremedied sin in their characters. Notice what the torture is. Is their conscience is here? Yes, this is not what you will hear in nominal Christian presentations. Typical Christian presentations will tell you that God will rain fire down on them, using his power to inflict pain and suffering appropriately for the sins that they've caused. But this says that they experience purity, holiness, and peace. He rains purity, holiness, and peace down on them. And it tortures them. Yes. Keep going. Next sentence. They would long to flee from that place. They would welcome destruction, that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. What is it the wicked actually desire? What do they want? They want to be separate from God. Why do they want to be separate from God? To stop their suffering. In this situation, with these wicked being tormented by their condition in his presence of purity, holiness, and love, they're being tormented, they're suffering, they're agonizing, they're longing to flee, they don't want to be there. In that situation, what is the just action for God to take? What's the right thing for him to do? What's the merciful thing for him to do? And notice the next sentence. Next three sentences. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choices. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. Like the waters of the flood, the fires of the great day declare God's verdict that the wicked are incurable. Do you see, this is all design law stuff. It's the actual condition and state of being that God through Christ provided real remedy and all who will partake will be transformed, be renewed, have their hearts regenerated to to love and, and, and grow in this atmosphere of purity, holiness, and love. But those who have hardened their hearts, who have solidified their characters in rebellion, they don't want to be there. They voluntarily give up their lives. They don't want to be there. It's torment to them. This is not an infliction.
1: But does not God rain fire and brimstone down from heaven? And everybody.
0: And and I don't have the uh, quote here today, but if uh, it's in, it's in the lecture, um, seven steps, um, from fear to friendship, seven steps of moral development. In that lecture, third DVD set. I actually have the quote in there if you want to get that quote. And in that quote, Ellen White describes the uh, final events after the thousand years, after the wicked are raised and a a great period of time goes by where they build implements of war to attack the city and the gates of the New Jerusalem are open the entire time this is transpiring until they march in mass on the city. Then the voice of Christ is heard to close the gates and then as they march on the city Christ is seen in his glory rises above the city he's enshrouded with the glory and brightness he's possessed with the father from all eternity and fire the, the brightness comes down through the city and out through the gates and consumes the people that's what she describes think that through who's in the city Who's in the city when this fire comes down? So what is that telling you about the quality of the fire? It's not harmful, it's not harmful at all. It's the fire of God's life-giving glory. You see this, and you want a Bible text for this? It kind of says the same thing. Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days takes his throne, and rivers of fire come out from before him, and 10,000 times ten 000, and thousands, and thousands and thousands stand in this fire. This is the fire of God's life-giving Glory. That Moses was radiating on the mountain and it didn't cause him any difficulty at all, but it caused the people agony when they saw the reflected glory on his face. So yes, the fire comes down, but what kind of fire is this? And where's it go? Do we have such preconceived ideas of an imperialistic dictator who will use power to inflict pain and suffering to kill people? That's, that's pagan. That's, that's Satan's view of God. It's distorted. All right, jumping on. Sunday's lesson. And we're going to Sunday. Okay. First paragraph, and this is some really good stuff I think we'll talk about. It says, even in early Israel, social justice was was very much part of God's laws and his ideal for his people. Justice is God's original intention for human society, a world in which basic needs are met, people flourish, and peace reigns. How do we understand social justice? In the Old Testament, how did God's justice work in the Old Testament? What was the setup in the scriptures? What did they describe in the Old Testament? over and over again. The
1: of the people.
0: Yes, if you'll read, I'm not going to go through all the texts today, they're all over the place, but justice is doing mercy to those who are suffering, delivering the oppressed, helping the widow and the orphan. And so justice is, under a law of love construct, is delivering the oppressed, not punishing the oppressor. That's what it is. Now, Keith Johnson, who is an online follower and friend of our class, Work, has worked for years in prison ministry teaching inmates about God's design law and helping them move past the imposed law constructs, and he's developed four questions to help understand more clearly justice from the design law view. And so here are the four questions. What if I told you that your youngest child was murdered? Would you want mercy or justice for the perpetrator? Just think about that. You don't have to answer out loud, but think about it. Your youngest, your, your youngest child was murdered. Would you want mercy or justice for the perpetrator? What if I told you the murderer was your oldest child? Cain and Abel. The oldest child, now the murderer. Would you want mercy or justice for the perpetrator?
1: Good answer, yes. You want both.
0: What if I told you you are guilty of the murder of the only begotten son of God? Do you want mercy or justice as the perpetrator? And you imagine people living at level four thinking with these questions. You see how it really kind of blows them up. And then here's the last question. What if I told you you had a daughter, your only daughter, the apple of your eye, who had never given you a moment's grief, but tonight, as her father, you you happen to have a tux hanging in the closet because tomorrow you're scheduled to walk your daughter down the aisle and give her away to someone you approve. If you're the mother, you have a new dress hanging next to the wedding gown, and you've been planning uh, on preparing for this since she first arrived in your arms. But tonight, your daughter is at a bachelorette party with her peers. And they, talk her, and they talk her into having one for the road. The first ever in her life. Two, three, four, six drinks later, while on her way home, she wipes out a school bus full of children on their way to camp. Everybody aboard the bus dies in a fiery inferno, but your daughter survives. Do you want mercy or justice for your daughter? And what do those who are related to the victims on the bus want? Human justice, human justice is based on human law, imposed rules, and is always motivated by selfishness, Seeks seeking for revenge under the name of justice, vengeance. The selfish heart has an ingrained sense of justice, but which in reality, if you actually look at it, is no more than vengeance, which is easy, easily exposed because justice of that vengeful heart, that selfish heart, is only sought when it doesn't apply to you and yours. Then you don't want justice if it applies to you and yours. See, it's not real justice. Justice in God's universe is entirely different. God's justice always seeks to deliver, to heal, to restore, to set right, to fix, and to save everyone who will allow God to do so. It is the justice of love, the law of God upon which his government runs. That's his justice. Thoughts about any of that?
1: I think that's why when the Bible says, "Vengeance is mine; I will repay," it's good to pay attention to that because when we're wounded by somebody in, you know, our human framework, we want vengeance. <laughs> we want them to. We think, "Big brother, get them!" But I think it's, God is saying, "Leave their." disciplinary actions to me because i'm actually seeking to save this person all you want is revenge on them
0: and then vengeance under level four is the revenge but vengeance under level six and seven is what what is vengeance under level six and seven
1: restoration
0: restoration you're taking vengeance on the disease state not on the patient who's sick what what is more vengeful to satan even if you look at it in that construct than to take all of his soldiers and turn them into your friends yeah, that 's what God is trying to do. you read that in actual Corinthians where it talks about um, that uh, that through let let Christ take you who are enemies and turn you into friends through christ that 's what god 's trying to do He's trying to turn us back to friends all right so monday 's lesson points out uh, points us to consider the Sabbath injustice and justice uh, and how does the Sabbath connect to justice and it points us to three Sabbaths: the weekly Sabbath, the yearly Sabbath every seven years they would let the land lay fallow, and the Jubilee Sabbath, every, every 50th year, the Jubilee Sabbath. What do we learn about justice from the Sabbaths? Let's start with the weekly one.
1: Restoration of your body and soul.
0: Okay, so there was definitely an aspect of rest on that Sabbath day. But I'm going to challenge you guys. Is, um, as you think about this, and you think about the justice of these Sabbaths, what law lens are you looking through? Is this imposed law or is this design law with the sabbath? Let's look at the weekly first. Is the primary element of the sabbath weekly sabbath? The primary element in the commandment, one of avoiding physical exertion called work or one of remembering something. What's the primary element of the sabbath? Remember. Oh, remembering, thinking, attending one's mind toward what? Toward God, toward strengthening our relation with Him, toward connecting with Him. The injunctions about not working are primarily to allow people time to remember, to not be so distracted with work that they can't remember, that they can't connect, they can't think. And as we are to remember, the lesson points out the Sabbath is helping us remember creation and redemption. Well, What are the laws that creation are built upon? They're the design laws. And we come back to remember our designer. And then how was redemption accomplished? By actually fixing what Adam broke in humanity. Again, design laws. So remember the Sabbath is not an arbitrary rule. and, And when it's presented that way, it's a day without any purpose other than God is testing your obedience. Will you obey or will you not obey? And we make it into an imperial law like human law. We destroy the purpose of the Sabbath. The Sabbath's real intent is for you to exercise your mind, law of exertion, in remembering and connecting with God and develop and grow with Him. This is why in Isaiah you can't be a Sabbath keeper unless you call the Sabbath a delight. And while we can use coercion to cause your child who hates broccoli to eat their broccoli, can you make them enjoy it? You see, you can't make somebody enjoy the Sabbath. That has to come from the heart. Yeah.
1: I think there might be a link between, oddly enough, the Sabbath of creation and the Last Supper. <laughs> uh, Jesus is the creator, so in the creation we have Jesus using his power to create this, and then a day to serve us, to allow us to think and decide and, and uh, build a relationship with him. At the Last Supper, the thing we often forget before he took off his robe and washed his disciples' feet. It says, and Jesus, knowing that all power in heaven and earth had been given to him, took off his outer garment, knelt down, and and washed his disciples' feet. So we see the creator in two different ways. We see him creating and then giving us a day to think. And then we see the creator, knowing all power was his, knelt down and served people who, every one of them that very day, was going to betray him, desert him, You know, deny him every single person's foot that day was going to be, you know, be against him. And yet he chose with all power to serve. And to me, Sabbath is that day of serving us to help us appreciate his, his, his way he handles power.
0: And Jesus commented on that when they talked about criticizing him for what he was doing the Sabbath. He said, my father's working all the time. The sun doesn't stop shining. The rain doesn't stop falling. My, Sabbath is, uh, my father's working all seven days of the week on the righteous and the unrighteous. So he's always doing that. But tying but it together further, what was the purpose of creating the Sabbath? It was a day constructed, built. And God actually did something different on the Sabbath than he did the other six days. God actually expended energy to create and build new stuff on the sixth day, showing a showing what? God is powerful. That's power. That's right there. That's serious power right there. Day seven, though, God steps back from the exercise of power and creates a day of liberty to think and to reason. Remember. 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 Yeah.
1: I appreciate this explanation of Sabbath, and I, I fully intend to keep it as long as I, I have a brain to think with, you know. I have an associate who believes that the Sabbath is uh, determined by the first moon every month, and so it changes every day. Every seventh day then becomes a different day.
0: Yeah, I actually addressed that in a Sabbath school class about a year and a half ago. Email me; I will email you a link to that that lesson where I actually expose that that's just completely based on a bunch of fallacies. Okay. Okay. That's just that's just every every. Idea they have that base that law is just false, okay? And it's easy to expose, but we won't go into. But email me, and I'll send you the link to that lesson, okay? Um. So, what about the yearly Sabbath now? We see the weekly Sabbath is a law. What about the yearly Sabbath? What was the reason for letting the land lie fallow every seven years? To
1: regenerate,
0: to regenerate. To regenerate the nitrogen that had been depleted from the use. there's also forgiving, not forgiving, but for giving. So that uh, whatever plants or uh, whatever fruit sprung up just on its own without being planted and cultivated, it was for anybody, anyone. Yep, not anybody could take it out of the field not on the, the seventh widow, year. The passerby, the traveler, whatever, said, "I'm hungry. I'm going to go. I'm going to grab an a handful of wheat." And so we see the design law, the nitrogen cycle, and built right in, and God is this. What about the jubilee? Imposed law, design law.
1: It was a wonderful restoration because not not only did they do the normal seven year thing where the the year with the land was rested, but everybody was restored their own property. Those who were slaves were freed. It right, was a whole year of that. And
0: so, what's the purpose? So, what's the purpose? Remember the context. First Corinthians four and nine. We are theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. Israel, did you have to be an Israelite to be saved in Old Testament times? No, no, it was not. A, it was not an exclusive pathway to salvation to be an Israelite. Many people were saved who were never part of Israel. Okay, so what was the purpose of Israel? Avenue for Messiah and also actors on a stage. They had a theater, a grand stage called the temple or a sanctuary. They had costumes. They had a script. Some call it scripture. But they had a script. And they needed to follow that script. Because in that script was an object lesson teaching God's true plan to heal. And you will find in in the history of Israel many object lessons being carried out. One of them is in the Jubilee. So this is an object lesson scripted to reveal a larger design reality. And the larger design reality is that through Jesus Christ, we will be set free from the slavery to sin. And we will be restored to our. The meek shall inherit what? The earth. The earth. We will be restored to an earth made new. That's the object lesson, which is design law. He will redesign and reconstruct and rebuild his earth back to the way he originally intended it. So all of them again come back to design. The, the fullest, richest understanding is when we, when we see it under design law. Tuesday's lesson. A memory verse at the top is, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of those who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Here you again see justice is doing what? Defending those who don't have a voice. Doing the, the right thing for, for other people. Delivering oppressed, the oppressed, not punishing the oppressor. And then the last paragraph, it says, though, of course, many of Old Testament prophets pointed to future events beyond their lifetimes, they also heavily focused on spiritual and moral reform and unselfish service in the present. The prophetic voice of God's servants rang loudest when his people made extravagant efforts to worship but did not reflect God's compassion for the suffering and those around them. One can't imagine a worse witness than those who are too busy worshiping God that they don't have time to help those in need. Might not a form of worship be revealed by those who are serving the Lord by ministering to the needs of others? So it's saying there's nothing really more that misrepresents God most than to actually be very religious, but to be selfish at the same time. Do we see any of that today? Throughout history, do we see that? You know, the the, the story of the of the uh, good Samaritan. The religious people wouldn't help him. The Samaritan did, but the Dark Ages, the Inquisition, the Crusades, the Taliban. What about the ISIS? Are these are the ISIS people? Are they non-religious? Are they like agnostics and atheists? Oh, no. no, they're very religious people. Very religious people. But do they think they represent Jesus Christ and his character? It talks about helping people. We've got about a minute left. I'll leave you with this thought. When it talks about helping others, would it be important to have at least some inkling of what their legitimate, objective need is before you offer help? <laughs> In fact, if you offer help without actually knowing what they need, might you injure? So a person standing beside the road with a sign saying that they need money for food, is that necessarily what they need? It could be. But it might not be. Give them a DVD to play. One the DVD player, they don't have. Yeah. <laughs> well, just remember what Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 For even... When we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. This is not talking about those with disability, those with real um, objective problems that prevent them from being able to. This is not about people who are capable, but choose a lifestyle of living off of charity of others. And why, why is that destructive for somebody who's capable, but lives off the handouts of others rather than why is that destructive?
1: destroys their dignity and their God-designed we were made for... for.
0: And it teaches them to live a dishonest life.
1: They're living a lie.
0: They have to present that they're incapable when they are capable.
1: And selfish, too. They're not contributing anything.
0: Yes, and so we're not talking about people with legitimate disabilities. The Bible's very clear. We should help the people with legitimate disabilities. And I think most of us, most of the organizations we belong to, are very active in helping people. We're talking about, though, the people who, who play on our sympathies to take advantage. Do, is there some part of us that also has a responsibility to have discernment? Even the wording of the text says, a man who will not work. Right. It's a man who cannot work yep. is a man who will not
1: work, and implying that he is chosen not to work.
0: So just keep that in mind when you go to help people. At least pause and think, do I have a sense of what their real need is? As a doctor, I have patients that come to me that, that tell me their need is a prescription for Xanax. That's what they tell me. I'm here. I need my Xanax. I need my Xanax. I can promise you that, that many of those don't need Xanax. They, they do need something else. And they have a need, and I try to meet that need. Sometimes they don't want to have their real need met. They only want their Xanax or their hydrocodones or, or whatever else it might be. And I don't meet that need. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you know our true need, and our true need is to be renewed in righteousness and love in heart and mind through what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. We ask that your Spirit be poured out. Remove the distortions, misunderstandings from from the biases and, and assumptions and, and learned ideas that we've we've held from the past and, and help us see more clearly your true nature and character and, and participate more fully in being lights in this world as we discover more and more of the amazing aspects of how you've constructed reality and how the science is showing we are free sentient beings and our intention and our love can have a positive influence in this world. But we, we need your love to, to invade us and fill us and overflow to those around us. We pray in your holy name. Amen.